Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham. I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we are here to finish our discussion of uh, the book one of Calvin's Institutes, the last two chapters, 17 and 18, on God's providence. And uh, Captain Clary over here is going to, (laughs) if you can't see because you're hearing, he has a very special hat on that his his child made for him. It's an amazing hat. And he'll read an opening section for us to kind of get acquainted with this, with chapter 17, with the hat on. No, I think I'll take the hat off of the reading. <laughs> yeah, my son, Tom, who, as you can, if you're looking at the screen here, you can see he's four. So he's quite thrilled that he can write the number four as well. But anyway, I'll leave <laughs> oh, that you took it later. off. <laughs> keep it on. I look you're no up. longer the captain, but uh, okay, you can still read anyways. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I mean, this was a pretty, pretty lengthy section as we're kind of concluding now opening of book uh, of, of the institutes with book one and uh, knowledge of God as a creator. And so he's, he's ending everything here with a pretty robust and pretty interesting discussion of divine providence. So I thought what I'd do is read um, from book uh, from chapter 17 and section eight, uh, just that section there where he uses Joseph, Job and David as, as illustrations of how to handle suffering that comes into your life and uh, kind of like a a best approach to be able to kind of get through difficult times. So I'm gonna start reading just the very beginning of of eight here, which in the Battles Lewis edition is uh, page 220. So chapter 17, section eight. Yeah, page 220. Um, So if anything adverse happens, straight away he will raise up his heart here also unto God, whose hand best impress patience and peaceful moderation of mind upon us. I think it's interesting. I mean, he's just, he's acknowledging that when things come into our life really screws us up in the way we think our minds get really chaotic. And so when we look to God, God's actually the one who brings us patience and peacefulness. He says, and then he gets, starts with these, uh, these illustrations from, from the old Testament. If Joseph had stopped to dwell on his brother's treachery, he would never have been able to show a brotherly attitude toward them. But since he turned his thoughts to the Lord, forgetting the injustice, he inclined to gentleness and kindness, even to the point of comforting his brothers, saying, if you uh, if it is not you who sold me into into Egypt, uh, but I was sent before you by God's will that I might save your life. And then again, indeed, you intended evil against me, but the Lord turned it into good. Second, his second example is Job. He says, if Job had turned his attention to the Chaldeans, by whom he was troubled, he would immediately have been aroused to revenge. But because he at once recognized it as the Lord's work, he comforts himself with this most beautiful thought. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the third one was David. Uh, he says, thus David assailed with threats and stones by Shimei. If he had fixed his eyes upon the man, would have encouraged his men to repay the injury. But because he knows that Shimei does not act without the Lord's prompting, he rather appeases him. And then he quotes, let him alone, he says, because the Lord has ordered him to curse. By this same bridle, he elsewhere curbs his inordinate sorrow. Um, I have kept silence and remained mute, says he, because thou hast done it, O Jehovah. And then Calvin kind of gives a little summary of, of these illustrations here at the very bottom. He says, if there is no more effective remedy for anger and impatience, he has surely benefited greatly who has so learned to meditate upon God's providence that he can always recall his mind to this point. The Lord has willed it. Therefore, it must be born, not only because one may not contend against it, but also because he wills nothing but what is just and expedient. 
so it's like a, it's a remarkable passage in one level on one level and a really hard one on another right um, there, there's there's something kind of noble about what what, what Calvin is is encouraging sufferers to. Uh, it's not to dwell in the suffering, especially if it's unjust, not to dwell in the injustice of things, which is where our minds go, which also is what, you know, brings about that chaos of mind. And so he's actually kind of like in a stoic sort of way, even though he can be very critical of the stoics throughout the institutes, uh, in, a, in a sort of stoic sort of way, it's, it's, a, it's an, a, a remarkable power of mind um, aided by God to be able to transcend your suffering and actually be able to see it from a higher plane in order to actually deal with it well. And, um, and so, you know, that, that's remarkable. We see that in humans and we're, we're impressed when there's somebody who suffered and can actually get beyond it in order to make good come out of it. And yet it's also kind of hard because, you know, he's, what do you do with somebody who is unjustly suffering and you're trying to encourage them and you're like, well, God did this to you and um, just got to deal with it. You know, and, and so we don't want to take a glib reading of this. And I don't think Calvin's being glib, um, but it's, it's, it's hard. So it's couple, well, I had a couple of thoughts. Um, one, I just noticed this, um, and it really fits a Calvin, is he contrasts looking upward to God with heart or unto God with looking with eyes unto uh, uh, the man. Uh, is it Shemai? Yeah, Shemai. Shemai, yeah. And this is interesting. So on page 213, he already kind of makes this distinction that with your mind, you can see mysteries, but yeah. your senses can't actually get to them. And he's, and he's in that section, he's talking about the deep abyss of God's kind of providence and will and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so I think here, this is actually also part of his anthropology, meaning when your senses inflame and they, you feel angry, if you use your senses in order to observe the person upon whom you're angry, and don't use your mind or heart in this case, which seems synonymous, then your, your body will take over and that's bad. But if you use that internal principle, that immaterial heart principle or mind, you're able to see the mysteries and, and in, on page 213 he talks about adoring them. In this case, is to have a, a patient and peaceful moderation. Yeah. And I, I do think we've talked, I think we've talked about this before, but Kelvin has this sort of mind-body uh, yeah. unity where the mind is sort of the governor of the body. Yeah. And if the body and the senses are controlling us alone without the alliance of the mind or heart, it's a problem. Yeah. And here he's applying that to his, to, to scripture, because I think scripture kind of makes the case or he would argue that anyways. So I, I kind of noticed that, that was helpful for me to think through because I, I think Calvin is actually a, a very coherent thinker. Yeah. And because he's working through all these topics, sometimes it's hard to, to pick up the, uh, the beads of his thought. But this is consistent with his anthropology and his view, I think in the first few chapters of book one, where our mind is actually going to ascend to God through our kind of worship and adoration of him. It's, that's part of what's going on here. Yeah, it's like when we were talking about that discussion of angels in the context of creation and how there was some, something, if I seem to recall correctly, that we could perceive uh, about them in terms of our soulish kind of qualities of mind um, that isn't perceptible by the body. Right. Um, so hmm. it's very interesting that there's this connection here too. Yeah, I don't remember exactly, but that would fit exactly with what I think Kelvin's yeah. getting at. Uh, the second one was a bit more personal, and that I can even remember, um, like years ago. Yeah, I can't remember all the reasons, but it's like you're not 
you're kind of nervous or anxious. I was. And listening uh, to whatever God ordains is right, which is a, it's an old hymn. Yeah. And it kind of popped into my mind. I think whatever the reasons were, maybe I don't want to admit them because they're probably embarrassing as I think about it because I was like 20 or whatever. But the, um, the point, what I'm trying to get at is that actually God's sovereignty is quite, uh, he doesn't use the word sovereignty. God's providence is quite pastoral. Yeah. Because he's right. If you view all the injustices that are happening to you as merely bad luck and chance or, the, or solely caused in some like bad person, but not because God as the primary cause has brought this about for your just, for, ju- for a just reason and for your good, then it's really easy to get angry at the world and at yourself and at God. But if you just kind of rely on him and, and remember, as Calvin says, this is part of God's just dispensation. And he doesn't cite it here, but you know, Romans eight, you could kind of remember as well that there is a, there, there isn't a good end throughout all this. In fact, yes. go on, it's interesting you, you quote a hymn. It's, it's the same. Um, when you think of uh, God moves in a mysterious way by Isaac Watts, he talks about how um, behind all of these dark things, there's a smiling providence, right? Or, mm. uh, and and it's kind of again that can be hard because it can you can run the risk of making God sound sadistic if He's smiling at you as you're undergoing this torture that's all within the purview of His own providence. It with it understand the smile rightly in that it's not a sinister smile, but it's it's that He's He's seeing the good that's being formed in you because of what's happening, and and delights in that that good. Um, what do you think of uh, on page two thirteen? Um, there's that, there's, uh, that's, so this is in, in 17, uh, two, um, but kind of near the end, he talks about Moses, um, quote, quotes Moses. And then he, he gives a statement here, uh, for we see how he bids us not only direct our scopes when, uh, our study to meditation upon the law, but to look up to God's secret providence with awe. It's not. It's weird. You would expect him to say that we should be looking up to God's revealed will with awe, right? Um, but here we tor- sort of normally think of ourselves as not being able to penetrate into some of these things, like secret providence, and yet here we're supposed to have awe before it. I wonder, and he doesn't say it explicitly here, but I think for Calvin, a lot of the laws is preparatory for the mystery of the gospel, and yeah. he's just mentioning that as I'm talking, I'm kind of putting this together, but he just mentioned. That, the, um, that in the law and gospel are comprehended mysteries which tower far above the reach of the senses. Yeah. Since God illumines the mind, we can know these things. So I'm wondering if he is thinking here that in the law, some of these things are mysterious, but will eventually be revealed. They're, we're to point them because they're Christological. I don't know. It's not obvious that's what he means. It's just kind of an idea. Yeah, but whatever, like- whatever, go on, sorry. No, I was going to say, it just seems like you can't penetrate into it, but you have this sort of tacit awareness of mm. this is how God operates in this mysterious way, go, to go back to Watts. And, uh, and, and then that, that's to prompt us to, to worship God, um, even in the things that we don't know. One piece that may help is um, at the very beginning of chapter 17, he has a threefold <sighs> schema for providence. Yep. Yep. Uh, the first is God knows the future and the past. Yep. Uh, the second... <sighs> is that God may work, work through causes and intermediary. But the yeah. last one is interesting. The finally, there's a particular end of God's providence. And that is actually his concern for the whole human race and us in particular. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, he says it's for the, for the human race, but especially his vigilance in ruling the church, which he deigns to watch more closely. Yeah, whatever that means. And I do wonder if 
why we might adore the hidden mysteries of God's providence, which he also says to adore it, uh, is we know that it's working in mysterious ways for our good, for the good of humanity, for the good of the church. And even if we don't understand it, we can still worship it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it, he's a little bit, um, he doesn't spell it out fully, does he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He wants to keep us away as you kind of keep reading after the, that threefold schema uh, when you get to the top of 211. You know, he wants to keep us away from, the, from turning to the blind urge of fortune. Um, so he doesn't want it to kind of be expressed that way, but rather that we need to have what he says, quiet and composed minds ready to learn the final outcome would show that God always has the best reason for his plan, either to instruct his own people in patience or to correct their wicked affections and tame their mm. lust. That's sort of the purpose of providence. And so even when his secret providence is happening, we don't understand it. Our response is to just basically is to, is to trust God yep. and to worship him through it. Yeah, the last uh, sentence of section six on page 19 talks about God's fatherly care as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he says, what else can we wish for ourselves if not even one hair can fall from our head without his will? You know, yeah. riffing on Matthew 10. So I, I think there's something to that. And this actually is connected to something we wanted to talk about, I think, a little bit, is the idea of evil in the world and God's providence. Because yeah. we have two things. We have, uh, we're talking about God controls even the single hair, but there's something about his hidden and deep will that's a mystery that we can't fathom or know. So there's, yeah. there's two sides. We can affirm what is revealed, namely God controls it all. There's secondary and primary causes, which Kelvin's pretty clear on this, in, these, uh, in this chapter anyway. Uh, and yet there's this kind of, um, to use the fancy word, an apophatic side to his theology. There's a sort of what we can't know about God's will. It's deep, it's hidden, it's mysterious, beyond our comprehension. And I think once you get to chapter 18, when Kelvin discusses evil, uh, in my reading of it, and, and I didn't necessarily read as close as maybe I should have, but it seems like Calvin spells it out without really giving an answer. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, evil, uh, God's behind it, but humans are responsible, but God is there. But, you know, he's never going to affirm God as the author of evil. And yet these two things are affirmed. The reason why, in my, this is my opinion, I, there's probably a scholar out there who could articulate it better than me, is I think Calvin is reticent to explain how this works because of this mysterious element of the depths of God's will. Yeah. He, uh, you know, he cites obviously is it Deuter Deuteronomy 29 and, and so on. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, the fact is, and, and he's even explaining a lot of this for us, right? Is that there is a secret hidden will, secret providence that we don't know, but we know it is actually operative. It's a reality. It's just that we don't have a knowledge of it. And so, um, you know, to then try to pierce beyond that and try to give us some sort of a conclusion to these things, uh, he can't do. Although it just seems like he's not, he's not fully come out and acknowledged that per se, like in a summary statement, you know, at the end of 18, um, he doesn't give us that. But it, that seems to be the acknowledgement is that this is, there is this mystery. Here's data from the Bible, right? Like here are these events that happen. God says he's in control of them. And God also says that the secondary causes are responsible, you know, and, uh, and so then, and then it just sort of almost leaves it at that. It seems like. Yeah, it is. I think that's one thing that's, um, it's an interesting virtue of Kelvin where for the most part, you can expect him to say, here's what the Bible says. Here's the best kind of reasoning and natural knowledge I can put into it. But 
it might be interesting or useful to explore this on its own, but this is really what scripture reveals is sufficient. So I don't necessarily need to, for the sake of worship, go beyond it because yeah. you know that earlier, or I think last week, um, Calvin's like, yeah, there's, there's great things in philosophy. I like reading them, but I mean, let's just quickly go through it because it's not useful in yeah. terms of the purpose of this book, which is worship of God. And yeah. you could argue that scriptures shaped that way when there's, Physics are really interesting, but scripture is not about physics. Why not? Because that's not necessary for worship, even though it's very interesting in physics. There's a lot of true things, gravity and all that kind of stuff we can figure out. Um, okay, I find that interesting. Uh, there is, however, kind of a classical locus of theology that Calvin brings up here when it comes to God's providence and him knowing all things, controlling all things, and scripture talking about him changing or repenting. Right. I mean, this is kind of one of those common, this common places you see throughout uh, a lot of writings where, okay, we say God can't change. God controls everything. But sometimes God says, I, you know, I repented that I made mankind. <laughs> you know, it was a Genesis six, I believe. Yeah. Uh, the God changes mind. Like, is he kind of, you know, whimsical? Like he, he'll be one way one day and different another day. And it causes a lot of problems. So um, there's one, well, first of all, uh, do you have any reflections on that or, or maybe I could read that section that we had discussed? Yeah. I mean, so that, yeah, that section is number 12 of chapter 17, right? Where he kind of lays out a lot of these examples, the flood, as you noted there and repenting of making humans, uh, repenting of having made Saul, the King, uh, his willingness to change in light of the, the, uh, the Ninevites changing, um, you know, the, uh, uh, Hezekiah's death, uh, those sorts of things. And so there's all these examples in scripture of change. And then right in the next paragraph, he's going to quote uh, from 1 Samuel 15 that God is not a man that he repents, right? And so, so what do you do? There's, there's these obvious moments of what seem to be to us of repentance on God's part. And yet very clearly the Bible is also saying that because God's so utterly different than us, he's not going to be repentant like we are. So that's, I think that's the lead up to what I think you're, yeah. So, so therein lies the problem. God is not a man who changes or repents, and yet God changes or repents or is said to. So what's going on? And really, this is the kind of problem of the idiom of Scripture, what it says, and its meaning. Because Scripture is talking to us in a human idiom, in a human way of communication. So you know, anthropomorphisms or anthropopathisms is the kind of more special way to say it. But really, it's just... God is a, is a spiritual being, invisible, not like us in terms of our bodily form. And therefore, to talk to us, he has to talk in our language, talk in our concepts. Calvin believes in something like that, and he uh, calls it accommodation. This is throughout the entire Christian faith tradition. It's everywhere. It's not unique to Calvin, but I think reading him, uh, at least section 13, might be entirely useful because... I think hearing what he says will sound odd to us, but it probably shouldn't. Yeah. So here's section Here, 13. Well, before you get into it, let me just say this too. Right before that, um, in, in the end of 12, right? So he's saying, man is not, uh, God is not a man, he can repent. And then he'll go on. Uh, and this is almost like a precursor to what you're going to read here in 13. He says, when God repents of having made Saul king, the change of mind is to be taken figuratively. Yeah. Right? Oh, so oh, I missed that. Yeah, so he's looking for oh, the right. idea of like figure, figure almost like fig, you know, when we talk today about like figural readings of scripture and stuff. Uh, a little later, uh, there it is added, uh, the strength of Israel will not lie, nor be turned aside by repentance. 
for he's not a man that even may repent. And that's uh, the first Samuel quote again. By these words, openly and unfiguratively, God's unchangeableness is declared. So when we speak of God's character, we're not speaking figuratively here. He can't change. Therefore, it is certain that God's ordinance in the managing of human affairs, both everlasting and above all repentance. Um, so he's saying God, God in his being, we don't speak figuratively of his being. We speak truthfully or directly about his being. And uh, there's no change there yet in a figurative way. When God is undergoing what appears to be change from our end, it, that, that's what's happening. And then really then what you're about to read in number 13 here is really almost like a, a kind of an explanation of how we understand that figurative repentance in God. You know, I never noticed that the first like reading of the, the figural. Yeah, you're right. Um, the change of mind is taken figuratively and then unfiguratively because there's different genre of communication. Yeah. Uh, that's actually really helpful. I, I want to come back to that later. But yeah, I'll still read uh, probably about half of this or so. Here's what Kelvin says kind of in, in explanation. What therefore does the word repentance mean? Surely its meaning is like that of all other modes of speaking that describe God for us in human terms. So in human terms is that anthro pomorphism kind of thing for because our weakness does not attain to his exalted state the description of him that is given to us must be accommodated to our capacity so that we may understand it now the mode of accommodation is for him to represent himself to us not as he is in himself but as he seems to us although he is beyond all disturbance of mind yet he testifies that he is angry towards sinners. Therefore, whenever we hear that God is angered, we ought not to imagine any emotion in him, but rather to consider that this expression has been taken from our own human experience. Because God, when he is exercising judgment, exhibits the appearance of one kindled and angered. So we ought not to understand anything else under the word repentance than change of action because men are wont by changing their action to testify that they are displeased with themselves. I guess I should keep reading. Therefore, since every change among men is a correction of what displeases them, but that correction arises out of repentance, then by the word repentance is meant the fact that God changes with respect to his actions. Meanwhile, neither God's plan nor his will is reversed, nor his volition altered, but what he has had from eternity foreseen, approved, and decreed, he pursues in uninterrupted tenor, however sudden the variation may appear in men's eyes. And it might be very useful to say, I think on the next page, no, somewhere in this chapter, he says, look, God's will is simple, but the way that we see it is manifold. In other words, God has one simple will. He's a different being, but the way in which we perceive it is manifold because our capacity is a complex capacity. We see things all throughout the world. We can't know the future in the past like he does. I know there's a tree outside, but maybe not across the world. God sees everything simply and purely, but the way that he reveals his will to us is in a way that is uh, for our capacity. Do you remember that section, by the way? Yeah, yeah, it's on uh, page 234. So uh, right kind of in uh, 18.3, okay. uh, where he says there that even though his will is one and simple in him, um, so simple meaning it's indivisible, uh, it appears manifold to us or appears diverse um, to us on account of our mental incapacity. We do not grasp how in diverse ways it wills and does not will something to take place. He's basically saying, we, you know, because we're complex beings, to try to understand the unified will of God, who is a simple substance, is like 
really hard for us to do, right? Because it's just not how we operate in this world. Yeah, and impossible um, yeah. to do. So let's just quickly think about this for a second. I, I think it might be useful to spend about two or three minutes just just saying these things out loud. Um, what do you think about the idea of accommodation and the fact that God, we should never imagine that God at any time is angry and has no emotional disturbance in, in himself? What yeah, you, it sounds, what, I mean, you hear that? well, this, this whole idea of like when he says that, uh, you know, there's, it's a change of action. Um, so there's, you know, there's no, there's no change in terms of God's own essence, uh, his being. Um, so any of the change that under, that, that he appears to undergo is a change just of his actions. And, uh, and these are things that are rooted in his plan and will from eternity, right? So this is how it's always, always intended to be. So that's unchanging. Um, and it would seem like he's sort of getting at the idea, you know, when we think of like, say Aquinas, Aquinas talking about how we know God really in terms of his effects. So when we want to know about how God is angry over human sin, um, we're going to no, learn learn that for ourselves, for the effect that we receive of his action as it hits us and it promotes a change within us, um, but does not imply any kind of change or emotion within the being of God himself. But he doesn't fully say it that way. It just seems like it's in line with that way of thinking. Yeah, I, I find that at this point in history, he does not feel like he needs to explain himself too carefully. And I think part of the reason why is what he is saying is commonplace enough where he can say it and expect people to be plausible and normal and acceptable. Like he'll say that, that God has the appearance of being kindled and angered, yeah. but in himself, no, he doesn't. He speaks, this is a, a human communication to our capacity. Yeah. I think if we just step back to it and just think logically for a second or kind of reasonably, like we have a body. When I get hungry, I have hormones and nerves. All these things start firing and I might get a little bit frustrated or angry or impatient because of hunger. Or if I cut my hand, I might get frustrated or sad, whatever it is. Our bodies are so connected to our well-being that it would be hard to imagine what existence without a body would be like but I can tell you that I wouldn't get hangry due to hunger, right? Right. God doesn't have a body. And so for that reason, he's a simple spiritual being or part of that reason, part of the, part of the reason why. And therefore, uh, he, Calvin doesn't think that God gets hangry because he's hungry. Yeah. <laughs> he's not going to get angry because he forgot something that he needed to do and feels dumb about it. God can't do that. He's not going to be angry because he can't do what he wants like he wants to be a great artist but is just incapable but god can't get that anger everything god does flows out of his simple will it's whatever god says happens so i think calvin is, is kind of drawing this this traditional well of conceiving of god and so for him this is totally normal and plausible and i think uh for most of us if we really think about it it becomes more plausible and normal and yet, I don't know that we think of accommodation this way. Let me just give you one example. Um, when we think of God, when, it's, when we read scripture, if you're just the average person reading scripture and you see God is angry at sin, what do we think that means? We think God hates you, right? Right, right. Uh, and yet Calvin throughout this chapter has said what? Providence is God's fatherly care for, for all people. Yeah. So uh, God, there, there is a, so Obviously, God hates sin. God is upset at people who sin. That's what scripture says. But what does that mean? And if we move beyond the idiom, it means that God has 
a distinct displeasure and stands against everything that is not life in himself. Sin is death. You know, it's evil. It's wrong. It's a corruption of the good. And it's, it's God's total standing against it. But he, God, he has to use language that we can understand. I mean, if you have a, a human father and you sin, that human father is bugged at you, <laughs> you know? Right, right. <laughs> uh, there, there's no other way for us to really get it other than to get how anger works in a body. Yeah, and so I no, think that's helpful. That's how he's communicating. Do you have any more to say? I, I don't know if I was clear or not. That, that makes sense in my mind, but sometimes when you talk and it's clear, other people don't find it that way. So what, is there another way you can put it that might be helpful? Well, I'm thinking in terms of, um, and, and again, I, you know, I need to look into him as a scholastic, uh, what, what way that the scholastic distinctions and views of things uh, are even maybe assumed by Calvin here, because if, you know, the, the question that becomes, that, that comes with this whole idea of, oh, God doesn't really experience emotion. It just seems that way to us, but it's not real. Um, you know, is that the way to go to think that, oh, God really then doesn't have emotion. So he's really not displeased with me. Um, so is, is he faking it? And, uh, and this is where, where I'm helped by in the scholastic tradition, the idea of God as, as pure being. And the, that, you know, when God, God is the purest essence of love. Mm. And that's not, that's static in the sense that it's very actively static. So that when that love hits <laughs> us, right, when love hits us, we, ex- we experience it as love. And we want to undergo the change of be into a state of being loved. Or if we're sinning, God's love hits us, his love for his justice then manifests itself to us, it's wrath. But it's not, it's not less real that it's that way. It's hard for us to conceive this because we don't know what pure being looks like. But, you know, because he is actus purus or pure being, um, he is the fullest expression of love, right? Or the fullest expression of displeasure in its realest sense, even though he's not underdo- undergoing it in a kind of, you know, prompted by emotions outside of him that, 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 that re- require this. The change isn't something outside of him that hits, that hits him to make that change, but rather it's, it's him hitting us and us undergoing the change. It's yeah, that's that helpful. It's uh, not the case that God doesn't, is not love, is not compassion, and so on. It's the case that God, there's no variation in God's love. Yeah. God can't love you more and less. Right. Like, it's always the best. and yeah. pure. It's pure. So that's a really helpful distinction. I'm not sure where Kelvin's drawing from, but I, it, one way of putting it is what you just said, that it's not that God has no emotion whatsoever. It's that God has affection that accords with a simple spiritual being. Yeah. In other words, he, John says, God is love. It's not the case that he has love. It's a quality. It's yeah. not the case that he is loving if you do some good things. It's yeah. pure, unvariable love. It's the best ever always. Yeah. And that's partly why heaven is so wonderful. Because you never have to worry that God will never be compassionate, loving, kind, generous, fatherly in his care for you. That's why Edwards describes heaven as a world of love, right? Hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's helpful to have those sorts of like categories in our head of like God being pure is pure being, and uh, any expression of that being is that in its purest sense, like love. um, You know, some people will say that God doesn't have affections; he has perfections, and so that love for him is a perfection. And it's just that that's, you know, and it's not like they're parts of him. It's just, that's who he is in his own simple essence. Yep. Um, it's hard stuff. 
Well, this was a, yeah, this is a bit of, um, some of this was a bit heady. I mean, the the mysterious providence of God, the accommodation of a simple God to complex creatures. At the same time, uh, the uptake seems quite pastoral as as we were at the beginning. Because of this, there's two things we can do with God's providence that I can summarize. One is worship and adore what we don't understand. So if whatever we just said is not exactly clear, like God's simple, pure being, uh, it's meant to worship him not to understand. I don't understand what it means fully, right? Nobody yeah. can because we're complex and God is simple. And secondly, when evil befalls us, there's a real freedom to realizing that, that God is in control. And yeah. your anger is not necessarily justified against another person because vengeance belongs to the Lord who knows the end from the beginning. So throwing ourselves into the mercy of God is pastorally quite helpful to have a peaceable yeah. mind. Any other things you kind of want to end by, by way of summary? I think we're kind of closing down our time. Yeah, I mean, there's tons of things to say. I mean, this is helpful in light of discussions that we've had over the years in terms of open theism and the nature of, you know, God repenting. Um, so I think he's, he's helpful there. Uh, you know, he's, he recognizes even, we didn't really get much into 18, but right mm. at the very beginning, he recognizes, you know, that, uh, that there's what he calls a more difficult question. So he's recognizing already the difficulties of what he's saying. So he's not being glib. And then the, the more difficult question is how does God have control over like the powers of darkness, like Satan, right? And, uh, you know, the lying spirit that comes to Ahab and, and those mm-hmm. kinds of things. And so Calvin, Calvin recognizes those profound difficulties in these, these, these matters. And he himself went through suffering. It's not like he's just some guy that didn't have any suffering in his life and then is speaking as though he were removed from that, right? He had kids die. You know, he had um, to deal with the loss of his own mother when he was young. He had to deal with, you know, as he's coming to Protestant convictions, being kicked out of Paris, uh, the government after him. Um, he's, he's also having to mentor and pastor um, ministers from France who've undergone profound suffering. So, I mean, he, you know, he knows uh, suffering firsthand. Um, and so then when he's talking about these things, they're as much uh, relevant to his own life as, you know, um, as anything else. Um, maybe he says here on, uh, right at the very end of, of 18.2, he says that uh, as a kind of summary statement, um, since God's will is said to be the cause of all things, I've made his providence the determinative principle for all human plans and works, not only in order to display its force in the elect who are ruled by the Holy Spirit, but also compel the reprobate to obedience. And so he's saying there that like here, explaining God's providence is actually supposed to bring in non-believers <laughs> Uh, to obedience before God. Wow. Which I think you do see in terms of people who try to study the stars and in history philosophy, they, they end up attempting to live the moral and good life according to the gods. But Calvin's already kind of told us that they attempt, but they can't do it because the final end is not always God. No. Um, well, that's a good way to end it. Uh, Calvin's a man of suffering. So he, these aren't theoretical to him. He's a yep. sickly person, lost friends, family, I'm sure. Um, well, family for sure, as you said, and, yep. uh, so, so they're not theoretical. I think they probably personally helped him to remember that God is in control. He lives in a time before medicine, uh, modern medicine and modern dentists and all these kinds of things. So yeah, yeah. He was in, under severe, severe poor health. <laughs> yeah. And he, he has a whole section about how, you know, <laughs> basically all of life death could happen at any moment. And I, I love, yeah, he probably hilarious. knew that. Um, so it's almost a bit comical the way he puts it, but at the same time, <laughs> you go in your house, it could burn down, <laughs> you know? whatever. Right. But I think relying on God, uh, God's fatherly care throughout everything was, was a big and practical doctrine for him. 
Yeah. And I think because of our technological society and, and medical society, um, sometimes we can forget that because we rely on technology and medicine to alleviate our suffering because we have that available to us in, in some cases at least. But actually, the, at the end of the day, it's still God. We're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's helpful, Ian. I think we should probably uh, close down here. It might even went a bit longer than half an hour, which is our kind of standard time. We, we finished the entire book one oh, of man. the Institutes. And, Crazy. You know, it's funny reading it this way. I, I feel like I'm really grasping it. It's memorable and, you know, and, and things like that. So book two, which uh, I think I'm most excited for because it's the Christology part. I mean, you have God the yeah. Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and the Church is the order, which is yeah. essentially the Yeah, the now we're going into knowledge of God as Redeemer. Yep. And uh, I just find it funny. That that's the rule of faith. That's the, the Nicene Creed, all that. So this is how that's shaped. I'm really looking forward to it. So next week, we're going to do chapters one and two of book two. And so we'll see you guys next week.